The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I don't want you to get the idea we're strictly parasitic here. I mean, we've got legitimate business, too. Watch your head. Lugers, we getting ready for a big breakout. Ah, certainly not. Cigarette lighter. Hottest item in Berlin right now. Of course, the Japanese will copy it and undersell us, but that's free enterprise. <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 8, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Two key stories for you today, but just one theme, and the theme is free trade. Free trade, greed, self-interest, charity, altruism, negotiation, agreement, disagreement, prices, costs, taxes, and politics. You know, all that cool stuff. Stuff that we'll be talking about right after reminding one and all that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course all of our past broadcasts. Today our theme is all about the principles of free trade and voluntary exchange. The specific topics we'll be looking at in examining that theme are Donald Trump's so-called threats to impose tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum and my own city of London's recent sting operation against a woman giving rides to and from hospitals and doctors to cancer patients. Now free trade is not just an international or a national issue, it's a personal one as we will clearly see illustrated today. Trump jolts markets with tariffs threat, reads the headline in March 2nd, London Free Press, or actually sourced from the Financial Post, written by Jesse Snyder. And he just writes briefly, no details were provided around what type of steel and aluminum products would be subject to punitive actions and which countries would be targeted. Canada is the largest foreign supplier of steel to the U.S., accounting for 16.1% of the country's imports. Brazil has the next largest share at 13%, followed by South Korea at 10.2%. Canadian representatives have urged the Trump administration to scale back its anti-trade policies. It is entirely inappropriate to view any trade with Canada as a national security threat to the United States, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland said in a statement. Should restrictions be imposed on Canadian products, Canada will take responsive measures to defend its trade interests and workers, end quote. And this one from the March 5th London Free Press originating in Washington by Alexander Panetta. A scalpel, not a chainsaw, reads the heading with the, with the subheading reading, Trump faces mounting pressure in U.S. to spare Canada from steel tariffs. And I think the key point being made in this article was this paragraph. To apply the tariffs, 
the U.S. is invoking a rarely used clause in a 1962 trade law that allows the president to declare tariffs if required by national security. The White House argues that the wording is broad and that national security also could include employment and economic stability of the domestic steel industry, end quote. So you can see the issues there. And finally, we have this item from the London Free Press locally, written by Jerry McCartney, who's the ex- chief executive and general manager of the London Chamber of Commerce. And under the heading, Trump's threatened tariffs may ignite trade wars, he wrote, quote, In spite of the strongest urgings from within his own Republican caucus and dire warnings from the Pentagon and the United Steelworkers Union, President Donald Trump continues to threaten all countries, including Canada, with huge tariffs on imported steel and aluminum, huge as in 25% in steel and 10% on aluminum. So what is it that the president doesn't get? Does he not realize that Canada is the largest supplier of steel and aluminum to the U.S.? Last year, Canada exported $9.3 billion in aluminum and $5.5 billion in steel to the U.S. In other words, 90% of all our exports in this sector went to the U.S. Global protectionism is not where we need to be, and while it seems the rest of the globe gets that, the point may be lost on the U.S. president. If Trump wants to do something positive for his country, he might think about enforcing these tariffs on suppliers of inferior steel from non-market economies, end quote. I'm not even going to go there and comment on some of those contradictions. But the point is, I don't think these points are lost on Trump. And as we'll hear from Trump himself, I think he makes that perfectly clear. On this side of our upcoming bumper, we'll be hearing the voice of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as heard on March 2nd, answering questions about Trump's threatened tariffs on steel and aluminum. And on the other side of our bumper, as we return, we'll be hearing from Donald Trump himself and from his chief NAFTA negotiator, Bob Lighthizer, on what the United States is looking for in renegotiating NAFTA. I'm happy to take your questions now. Good morning, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, my name is Brett Glover with Rock 95 and Cool FM in Barrie, and uh, we have a fairly strong manufacturing sector in this community, and I'm pretty sure they'd be happy to hear what your government plans to do on new tariffs announced on aluminum and steel in the uh, south of the border. Obviously, uh, the uh, integration of the North American uh, steel and aluminum market is something that has created millions of good jobs on both sides of the border and has benefited uh, companies, workers, individuals uh, right across North America. The United States has a $2 billion surplus on steel uh, with us. Uh, So we regard the imposition of any uh, new tariffs or any tariffs on steel or aluminum between our two countries as absolutely unacceptable. Uh, Furthermore, the level of cooperation and integration of our militaries, our defense of North America, and our working together on a broad range of security issues uh, means that uh, it just makes no sense to highlight that Canada and Canadian steel or aluminum might be a security threat to the United States. Uh, That's why this is absolutely unacceptable, and it's uh, a point we've made uh, many times that I've made directly uh, with the President, and it's one we're going to uh, continue to engage with uh, all levels of the U.S. administration. 
Good afternoon, Carly Thomas with CBC News. Um, as far as the tariffs, have you spoken to President Trump about them directly? Uh, will they apply to Canadian supply? If not, are you planning to speak with him and what will you say? Uh, I have spoken a number of times directly with the President on this issue, highlighting the integrated nature of the North American steel and aluminum market, uh, the highlighting and reminding him of the close uh, security cooperation that we have. Uh, I've highlighted that this is uh, not something we wanted to see, uh, and we will continue to engage uh, with all levels of the American administration in the coming days so that they understand that the, this proposal is unacceptable. Uh, just can I introduce yourself first. Sorry, Colin with the Canadian Press uh, of quantum mechanic uh, computing. I, I remember. I <laughs> want everyone else to remember. What, what are you hearing in terms of the scale uh, in, if these tariffs were to, to proceed? What are you being told about that? What would the impact be? Well, obviously, uh, the level of integration of the Canadian and American uh, steel and aluminum industries uh, are well understood. Uh, ingots produced, uh, uh, aluminum ingots produced in Canada are used uh, by American manufacturers to, uh, uh, in a broad range of things. Uh, we uh, import uh, more steel uh, than the Americans uh, uh, ex uh, import, uh, <coughs> sorry, we uh, have a significant trade surplus. Americans have a significant trade surplus with us on steel, uh, which, mean, which means uh, we buy steel from them, they buy steel from us. The integrated nature of our supply chains uh, means that there will be significant disruption in Canada, obviously, uh, but also in the United States. Uh, we buy more steel from the United States than any other country, and disruptions to this integrated, uh, integrated market uh, would be significant and serious. Uh, but that's why we are impressing upon the American administration uh, the unacceptable nature of these proposals that are going to hurt them uh, every bit as much as they will hurt us. Uh, and we are confident that uh, we're going to continue to be able to defend Canadian industry. Are you going to back down on the tariffs? No, we're not backing down. Uh, Mexico is, uh, we've had a very bad deal with Mexico, a very bad deal with Canada. It's called NAFTA. Our factories have left our country. Our jobs have left our country. For many years, NAFTA has been a disaster. Uh, we are renegotiating NAFTA, as I said I would. And if we don't make a deal, I'll terminate NAFTA. But if I do make a deal, which is fair to the workers and to the American people, uh, that would be, I would imagine, one of the points that we'll negotiate. It will be tariffs on steel for Canada and for Mexico. So we'll see what happens. But right now, 100 percent, but it could be a part of NAFTA. And I understand I just got a call from the people who are right now in Mexico City negotiating NAFTA. Uh, Mexico and really Canada want to talk about it. But uh, if they aren't going to make a fair NAFTA deal, we're just going to leave it this way. People have to understand our country on trade has been ripped off by virtually every country in the world, whether it's friend or enemy, everybody, China, Russia, uh, and take people that we think are wonderful, the European Union. We can't do business in there. They don't allow. They have trade barriers that are worse than tariffs. They also have tariffs, by the way, but they have trade barriers far worse than tariffs. And if they want to do something, we'll just tax their cars that they send in here like water. So we may have friends, but remember this, 
We lost over the last number of years $800 billion a year. Not, not a half a million dollars, not 12 cents. We lost $800 billion a year on trade. Not going to happen. We got to get it back. And of course, the biggest problem, the biggest problem is China. We lost $500 billion. How previous presidents allowed that to happen is disgraceful. But we're going to take care of it. Thank you all very much. Thank you. No, trade war. Thank you. I don't think you have a trade war. No trade war? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to have a trade war. No. And I would like to thank both you, Secretary Bajardo, and Minister Freeland for your hard work and for the hard work of your able staffs. We are dealing with a large number of difficult issues, very technical issues, and I appreciate the efforts made by all negotiators. In spite of this hard work, we have not made the progress that many had hoped in this round. We have closed out only three additional chapters, good regulatory practices, administration and publication, and sanitary and phytosanitary measures. We have also completed work on sectoral annexes related to chemicals and proprietary food formulas. And we are making substantial progress on telecommunications, technical barriers to trade, we have also agreed to include a chapter on energy. These chapters are important and provide further evidence that all three countries want to upgrade and modernize NAFTA. But to complete NAFTA 2.0, we will need agreement on roughly 30 chapters. So far, after seven months, we have completed uh, just six. Now, granted, these things tend to converge more towards the end of a negotiation. As I have said since August, we have two major goals in these negotiations. First, we want to update NAFTA to address modern trade issues. All three countries agree that NAFTA is outdated, and I believe we should be able to reach agreement on new issues like digital trade, labor and environment, intellectual property, and much more. We urge all parties to move more quickly on these issues. Second, we, uh, we believe that NAFTA should be rebalanced. From our point of view, among other things, changing this agreement so it no longer encourages outsourcing, developing rules of origin that will fairly treat our manufacturing sector and workers, and reshaping the rules of government procurement are very important. We also need to make more progress on these points to conclude a new NAFTA. Now our time is running very short. On July 1, as everyone here knows, Mexico will choose a new president. That campaign, as I understand it, begins in earnest just next month. <clears throat> but Mexico is not the only NAFTA country in the midst of elections. Both Ontario and Quebec have elections scheduled later this year. Finally, the United States has midterm elections coming up in November. All of this complicates our work. I fear that the longer we proceed, the more political headwinds we will feel. I also note that in all three countries, reaching an agreement at the negotiating table is only part of the process. 
In the United States, after an agreement in principle is concluded, our laws require public disclosure of texts, further consultations, and numerous reports before it can be considered by Congress. Thus, in the U.S., we must resolve our outstanding issues soon to maintain the possibility of having this measure be considered by the current Congress. As President Trump has said, we hope for a successful completion of these talks, and we would prefer a three-way tripartite agreement. If that proves impossible, we are prepared to move on a bilateral basis if agreement can be made. We have tried to be clear and very specific about what we hope to see in a new NAFTA. We are prepared to work continuously to achieve a breakthrough. I understand that these talks are not easy for anyone. Each of us has our own political concerns. But we are at the point where we have very important decisions to be made. If the political will is there, I am certain that we have a path to rapid and successful conclusion. Thank you. Now, Trudeau has openly stated that in the area of steel and aluminum, Canada apparently is the country with the trade deficit. So if trade deficits are a problem, how come nobody's bringing that up from the Canadian side? You know, no one on the Canadian side of the border has challenged Trudeau as to why Canada has such a trade deficit in the area of steel and aluminum. Isn't Canada the one being ripped off if this trade imbalance matters? We don't get any answers to that question, do we? I think it's irrelevant. I don't think you have to have an... It wouldn't make sense to have equal amounts of trade of the same product going back and forth between two borders. It's differences in supply and demand in differing jurisdictions that makes trade so palatable. And yet, everybody talks as though it has to be equal on some trading level. It has to be equal in terms of one thing and one thing only, and that's freedom. Beyond that, nothing should be equal. And if such a deficit is a problem, why is it only a problem for the Americans and not the Canadians? I mean, if we've got the deficit, why are they complaining about it? Well, the idea that in order for two countries to trade with each other, that that trade should be equalized in some sense is oxymoronic and completely contrary to the whole concept of trade in the first place. After all, the more unequal two jurisdictions are in economic matters, the more they need trade to both raise their shortcomings and lower their oversupplies of whatever they can produce better than the other jurisdiction. That doesn't always have to be something physical. It could be something like labor, intellectual, whatever, services. Trudeau is speaking from the the static view of what North Americans have now in terms of trade. Since all forms of trade to one degree or another, quote-unquote, create jobs and benefit people? Of course it does. That's not the issue. The issue, though, is how can we create even more jobs that will benefit more people? Or perhaps we should be asking how can we create an environment where the people who aren't allowed into the marketplace can be allowed in? Personally, it seems clear to me that, once again, Donald Trump is using a threat to put tariffs on steel and aluminum as a negotiating device in order to secure concessions in other areas of trade, which are among the many complicated issues we heard Bob Lighthizer, the American NAFTA negotiator, mention in the comments that we just heard. You know, being among them, I know that political pundits see free trade in this narrow ideological framework that may or may not be true or accurate, depending upon whether you, know, on whether you sit on the left or the right. 
But even once having accepted free trade, that doesn't mean that anything goes in terms of traders in one jurisdiction having the same set of rights as traders in another jurisdiction with which they trade. These are separate issues. And the big issue, of course, both inside and outside of countries, is crony politics. Crony politics is always a threat to any form of free trade. Or I guess it's not even free trade once it's crony. And cronyism is often a key driving force behind politics, from the highest level to the most subtle and personal level, as we'll discover later in the show today. Philosophically, free trade is, of course, a fundamental human right. And whenever governments interfere with that right, all kinds of negative consequences occur, including many unforeseen ones. So let's be very clear what is actually meant by free trade, or as Ayn Rand referred to the broader concept, the free market. And she writes, and I quote, In a free economy where no man or group of men can use physical coercion against anyone, economic power can be achieved only by voluntary means, by the voluntary choice and agreement of all those who participate in the process of production and trade. In a free market, all prices, wages, and profits are determined not by the arbitrary whim of the rich or of the poor, nor by anyone's greed, nor by anyone's need, but by the law of supply and demand. The mechanism of a free market reflects and sums up all the economic choices and decisions made by all of the participants. Men trade their goods or services by mutual consent, to mutual advantage, according to their own independent, uncoerced judgment. A man can grow rich only if he's able to offer better values, better products or services at a lower price than others are able to offer. Wealth in a free market is achieved by a free, general, quote-unquote, democratic vote, by the sales and the purchases of every individual who takes part in the economic life of the country. Whenever you buy one product rather than another, you are voting for the success of some manufacturer. And in this type of voting, every man votes only on those matters which he is qualified to judge, on his own preferences, interests, and needs. No one has the power to decide for others or to substitute his judgment for theirs. No one has the power to appoint himself the voice of the public and to leave the public voiceless and disenfranchised. Intellectual freedom cannot exist without political freedom. Political freedom cannot exist without economic freedom. A free mind and a free market are corollaries. And by that she means they're inseparable. Then she writes, Now observe that a free market does not level men down to some common denominator, that the intellectual criteria of the majority do not rule a free market or a free society, and that the exceptional men, the innovators, the intellectual giants, are not held down by the majority. In fact, it is the members of this exceptional minority who lift the whole of a free society to the level of their own achievements while rising further and even further. A free market is a continuous process that cannot be held still, an upward process that demands the best, the most rational of every man and rewards him accordingly. While the majority have barely assimilated the value of the automobile, the creative minority introduces the airplane. The majority learn by demonstration. The minority is free to demonstrate. 
the mental parasites, the imitators who attempt to cater to what they think is the public's known taste, are constantly being beaten by the innovators whose products raise the public's knowledge and taste to even higher levels. It is in this sense that the free market is ruled not by the consumers, but by the producers. The most successful ones are those who discover new fields of production, fields which had not been yet known to exist. All of the evils, abuses, and inequities popularly ascribed to businessmen and to capitalism were not caused by an unregulated economy or by a free market, but by a government intervention into the economy, end quote. So think about these principles as we move forward with our very down-to-earth daily life story about how these principles affect the daily lives of people everywhere. So from the international free trade scene between Canada and the United States to a very local and personal free trade scene, we now reach London, Ontario's Big Story of the Week, which began as a story about a good Samaritan, but then suddenly turned out to be a story about a bad Samaritan, at least in the eyes of many. The outrage sparked locally in the city was palpable, and I'm only able to offer you but a small sample of it here today. It was all started by a London Free Press article written by Jonathan Scher on February 27th that began with the paragraph, quote, A London woman who survived breast cancer isn't faring so well against city bylaw officers who fined her $2,260 for providing a service to patients that medical staff say is invaluable, end quote. So having heard about the city sting operation, former city councillor Steve Orser contacted CJBK AM 1290's Andy Ootman, and thus our story of altruism's shameful hypocrisy begins. I was really taken by the story and horrified by the action of the city. And as you're aware, a few years ago my late mother passed away, and uh, she was a volunteer that fought on the front lines against cancer and other illnesses. She was very dedicated and very loyal. And uh, I looked at the story, I looked at the amounts we're talking about, and I decided in her honor and her memory, I made the donation. That's it. What have you given? I gave $3,000, so she's over the top. She shouldn't suffer. Her money worries are now done. Everybody else can man up if they want. The best they can. Stephen Orser, let me, on behalf of, I believe, everyone in the City of London, thank you and salute you for this very generous donation. So, Andy, since, you know, we've had a long relationship, right? Yep. What are you going to give? I'm waiting to see it on the GoFundMe page. I gave Surprise yes- me. I gave yesterday one, one oh, of our... Oh, did co- you? I didn't see it. I'm yep. sorry. No, not on the GoFundMe page, but we had some of our listeners starting to donate, and uh, they were each donating $25, so I did. And um, You know what? That's great. It's wonderful. It all counts. It all adds up. But you're doing a bigger job than any of us, because you can broadcast this, so do it. Okay, Stephen... Let's get her a new minivan. Let's win the court case and let her go. Stephen, tell me what is so compelling about this case to you. Memory of my mother and her work with people that were dying. That's it. End of story. I remember how she used to drive up to the hospital and do her volunteer time. It's the same thing. It's just this lady's getting paid for gas and getting a sting operation by the city. Like, come on. It's insane. Some people argue that Oris Katolik has a job to do. 
I'm not going to argue against Doris. I know he's a friend, but, you know, he's got bosses. The bosses can decide. I mean, we made a variance for a backyard chicken for a lady. Can't we do the same for this lady against cancer? I'm busy, Hogan. Dismissed. With a relief fund. Hmm. Ten marks untouched. Yeah, so were the boys when I took it from them. You mean they gave to the Winter Relief Fund voluntarily? Well, more or less. We were playing poker and we cut some money from the pots. Gambling is against regulation, except for charitable purposes. <laughs> no wonder they made you chairman of the fund. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who are not being altruistic but are acting in their own self-interest by making it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. You can join us on our journey in the right direction by checking out our Patreon account at patreon.com slash justrightmedia or by visiting our homepage at www.justrightmedia.org to become an active participant through your financial support. Now, I don't get paid for doing this, but I'm not doing it for altruistic reasons either. And nor should you. So while you're visiting either of the sites just recommended, make it a point to sample and to share some of our timeless past archived broadcasts. So as we just heard in that Hogan's Heroes audio bite coming into this quarter of the show, gambling's illegal except for charity. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how we bend over backwards? to accommodate otherwise prohibited behavior if it's done for some sort of altruistic reason. And in the case of our Hogan's Heroes example, altruism, not charity, was the operative principle because as we heard, the contributors did not do so voluntarily, but as a bribe to the authority to allow them to keep gambling without ending up in solitary confinement. (laughs) And that unfortunately is the way of the world. On the earlier side of our bumper, we heard from former municipal councillor Steve Orser, whose motivations for giving money to the cause seemed to have little to do with anyone's freedom to give people rides on their own terms. I remember my mother doing her volunteer time, and with this lady it's the same thing except people are paying her for gas, said said Orser. Well then... It, quote-unquote, is not the same thing, is it? The it is not about giving rides or being a volunteer. The it is about doing it for money. Because in a world that wants something for nothing, that's what is being valued. And when that happens, what invariably results is that people get very little or nothing for a, a big something that is demanded of them. Why can't we just make a variance for everyone, asks Orser. I listened to Steve Orser's entire interview with Andy Utman, and nowhere did he mention, strangely enough, the city's taxi monopoly or the city's regulated transit system. This kind of astounded me a bit because Steve Orser was among the first to bring that issue to the attention of the public, and I know because I was personally involved with that. In fact, a few decades back, Orser, myself, Barry Wells, and Jim Montag Talk about mixing right and lefties in, in one one group. And a few others worked together to try to open up the taxi market in London to any and all competitors who wished to enter the field. But both the city and its quote-unquote protected taxi monopolies would have no part of it. 
And that was the end of that until, of course, Uber came along. So far from being altruistic, I would suggest that Steve Orser is being a little selfish by, by giving his $3,000 donation to this cause. I mean, it's all about his mother. That's what he said. Quote, that's it. End of story. End quote. Except, I wouldn't be too surprised if Steve is planning another run at city council this fall. I might suggest to political authorities that they check his election expenses for a $3,000 advertising expenditure. <laughs> Am I being too cynical? Just looking at some of the outrage caused in the city in the pages of the London Free Press, a whole section of letters to the editor devoted under the uh, heading Bylaw Sting Stuns. Just a couple of the comments I see there that caught my attention. This one from... from uh, D. O'Hagan in London, quote, there are times when the letter of the law should be nudged aside to make room for the deeds of amazing people like this. She should be given an award, not a $2,260 ticket. Or from Susan R., who writes, I feel so much better knowing my tax dollars are being used in such an effective manner. Or this one from Dale W., who wrote, I had to check my calendar after reading this story. I thought it must have been April 1st, but no, it was still February. Oris Katolik and the City of London Hierarchy should be ashamed to take more than $2,200 from this lady who was just providing a necessary service to those who can't afford or have no other means of travel. Now guys, let's get after these street musicians and panhandlers who are out for themselves, not for the good of other people. I think Dale is the only writer here who actually got the theme of what was really going on. One person on the other side of the issue, Chuck R., wrote, It seems gracious to defend the actions of a well-minded individual who thought she was doing a good turn for humanity, but liability is the key word. A person can do the same good turn by volunteering through the Canadian Cancer Society, which trains volunteers and also has the volunteers thoroughly screened, including driving record, criminal record, and vulnerable victim search, in order to protect the general public. Know of what you speak before criticizing the bylaw department trying to keep the public safe. Interesting contrary view. Now let me make it perfectly clear from the outset that I fully support the right of the driver in this story to continue her activities unharassed by the city. And I, con and I continue to do so even after learning the bigger picture that surfaced after all the virtue signaling had, had already been dissipated. All of the people who expressed support for the driver initially really did not care about what she was doing or, or about the many people in need that she was serving. What mattered to all of them, and this is demonstrated by what has happened since, was that she didn't make a profit or gain from her activities. That was the big deal. That's what made her a saint. Not that she was helping people, but she was doing so without gain. Now, the source of the evil in this issue is the city's taxi monopoly and its related bylaws. So coming up next on this side of the bumper... Our thanks to Andy Ootman at CJBK AM 1290 for providing us with a few of these gems, including his exclusive interview with the criminal driver herself, named Nancy for the purposes of the interview, but whose real identity has remained anonymous to this point in time at least. You'll also be hearing from a long-time acquaintance of mine, none other than Jeff Schlemmer, 
who, since our weekly appearances together on Left, Right, and Center, has obviously continued on his journey in the left direction. (laughs) But to add to the drama, on the other side of our bumper when we return, we'll be hearing from CFPL AM 980's Andrew Lawton with his startling update to Nancy's story that seemed to have chased all of her supporters away. Hello, London. Hello, London. They are delighted to hear your voice, and uh, let's look at what you have been through the last uh, few days. Uh, let's, Let's deal with the tough part. The last few days, people may think, oh, all this media attention, you didn't want media attention. No, not at all, Andy. It started off with me, of course, what I did, what I thought I did was the right thing in my heart and my soul and I ended up calling the hospital to tell them that I was no longer going to drive for them due to the fact is that I received this fine so therefore that following Monday they called the free press who called the free press the doctors called the free press a doctor why would a doctor call the London Free Press about your story? Because he thought that I was a critical volunteer to help people for colonoscopies. Tell me about the phone call you got from the bylaw enforcement officer who tricked you into picking him up saying he had a colonoscopy. Can you Tell me about that. He called me, I believe, about a week before this had happened. He gave me his name. He gave me the phone number, which I asked for. And he said he was going to St. Joseph's Hospital. Did he give you a sob story? Uh, no. No, what, he did what not. What did he say about what he, why he needed your service? He was going to St. Joseph's Hospital for a colonoscopy. And could you drive him? Yes. And then you did? No, to come and pick him up. Yeah, to come and pick him up. And then as you were driving him, tell me about the conversation you had with him on the way to the hospital. You actually... Well, he opened the door and I looked at him and I said, I think I know you. But maybe I was wrong, you know, because I know a lot of people from my past and um, he gets in the car and I says, um, don't worry about anything. I says, the worst you probably are going to go through is because I was there in November, is that you're going to um, go in. Well, what he had to drink and all that, because I know. But I said, what's going to happen is you're going to go into the hospital and you're going to go through the doors and there's a fish tank on to the left and go through those doors and they'll meet you right there. After you're done, the nurse will call me, tell me that you're done because it runs about two hours. I will come there for, come and get you, and I will bring you out to the car. You were comforting him. You were consoling him. You were guiding him. You were encouraging him. And, and I also give my clients water. And then what happened? As I turned into St. Joseph's Hospital, he, 
after I, t I told him all this, he then, sorry, uh, another officer came to my car window and knocked on the, the window door. And then he, the, gen uh, the, the gentleman in the back said to me who they were. And to, I was so upset and I told him that I had like papers, like I even said, I even said to him, he goes, uh, um, I said, I've driven police officers and I've driven OPP officers for colonoscopies and I have taken them home. And he responded to me, we're not the police. That's exactly what he said to me. I couldn't move my car to the side. I asked him to move my car to the side. I could not move it due to the fact is because he was like sort of protect. Then he asked me for my driver's license. I took out my driver's license and he sort of peered in the window and he had two tickets in his hand already. What I don't understand is how I can pick one the gentleman up at 1.30 and the tickets were already written up for 1.34. How did you feel when the fellow who had called you to ask for a ride to take him to his colonoscopy turned out to be an agent of City Hall as part of a sting operation and had his buddy waiting for, the, for you so he, they could pounce and hit you with a $2,000 fine? How did you feel? I was so shook up. I felt nauseated. I didn't know my head wasn't focused. So I drove out of the hospital grounds. I went to the park and I called the hospital and I told them I could no longer do this due to the fact is because I got this fine. Okay, let's go to uh, the man who started this uh, GoFundMe push, which has now, well, we'll get an update. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer joins us now. Jeff, I appreciate you joining us. Well, glad to be here. Tell me what you uh, what your reaction has been to what you've been hearing. Well, it's remarkable, although it, it's not surprising to me. Uh, uh, I have to admit, I haven't heard uh, the people who are negative. Uh, everybody that I've heard from uh, is uh, quite clear that they're extremely sympathetic to Nancy and extremely upset with City Hall. So, uh, so I'm on that side. Tell me what led to your decision to do something about what you perceive to be an injustice done to this woman driving patients to their uh, cancer appointments. Well, you know, I, uh, I've been a lawyer for 30, 33 years now, I guess, and I hate it when laws are used to achieve the opposite of the result that they, politicians want them to achieve. And that seems exactly like what's happened here. Nobody intended this law. If you ask any city councilor when they pass this law, so would you like to shut down disabled people from being able to do volunteer work uh, and recoup their gas so that they don't have to use their meager food allowance to pay for it? Is that what you're trying to do here? None of them would say yes. But what I've seen over and over, and as you know, I've been doing this work for 30 years uh, uh, against government, uh, is that you find bureaucrats who find a way to make the law achieve a bad result uh, that nobody intends, and it drives me crazy. Um, so anyway, it seemed in this case that uh, I had a sense that the public would strongly support Nancy, so I thought, well, you know, one option as a lawyer is to try and do what we can to fight the case and win it, uh, but there's huge stress involved in that, and again, my business in a lot of ways is, uh, is uh, uh, suing the government on behalf of uh, people on ODSP benefits, uh, and I know that that's extremely destructive of their health, so I thought maybe we can just raise the money, pay the darn ticket, and be done with it. 
Uh, and I can tell you, I've spoken to a manager at the ODSP office who's very confident that uh, that uh, she's not going to be in trouble with them. Although I would suggest that if she wants to, uh, we would be happy to intervene uh, in that conversation before she goes forward. Um, but they uh, agree as well. We all want volunteers to be out in the community. Volunteers, or I should say, disabled people. Um, I've known many, many of them over the years. Every doctor says the best thing for them to do is get out of the house, get away from their pain, get away from their depression, get out into the community, see people. And ideally, they can feel a bit useful, and maybe even that they're giving a bit back to society so they don't just feel like a drain on it. So it's, it's among the best medicines we can have for our disabled friends and relatives. And it just so offends me when a bureaucrat finds a way to shut that down. What about those who argue, well, technically, Oris Katolik, the sheriff with the white hat, is simply enforcing the bylaw? Well, that's simply untrue. And as just, I said, I've been a lawyer for over 30 years, and I think the bylaw was misapplied here. When I look at the bylaw, it says that it applies to a vehicle uh, that is conveying uh, someone in exchange for a fee or other consideration. Clearly, in, the intention of that is they're making money on it. It was never intended that it would apply to somebody who's a volunteer who's doing it on a nonprofit basis. And yet, there's a weird exception there that says that, well, there is an exception for a nonprofit organization. And it's like, well, why does it have to be limited in that way? You know, why do we have to micromanage bureaucracy down to the ground when you've got, we know there are thousands of people in this city who are helping their neighbors and friends every day doing things like this. What's wrong with them doing it on their own? Why does the government have to, to butt in on it and, and uh, make it hard? So I, I'm not at all clear that this, uh, that this law was broken. Uh, and I'm of half a mind to think it would be very interesting to go to a trial on that, uh, because again, I don't think it was ever intended to apply to uh, to uh, nonprofit people. And the fact that the fine is $1,100 doesn't suggest to me that it was intended to deal with average people. If it was average people, the fine would be $100. I do have to begin with somewhat of an update to a story that I spoke at great length about yesterday on the show. And it's about a woman at 58 who found herself on the receiving end of two tickets worth combined $2,260 for, as was reported in the London Free Press, driving people to and from their cancer treatments at St. Joseph's Hospital. The story was written by Jonathan Schur in the London Free Press, and it was very clear. A woman was an absolute saint. She was a civic saint. She was driving people who couldn't afford taxis, who didn't have people that could give them a ride for endoscopies, endoscopies, and colonoscopies. She was charging $12 round trip. And in your journey, you got a bottle of water, you got words of reassurance from someone who had been there, and she would even help you get situated in your home. The hospital was so concerned about her being ticketed, they called her a vital volunteer in Jonathan Schur's story. And to be clear, this part has not changed. It sounds like she was, at very low cost, genuinely helping people out that were in need. But the story has changed in a couple of other ways. Jonathan Schur wrote a follow-up piece last night that was updated this morning saying that the woman has now admitted that she took non-medical fares as well. She would drive people in some situations to the mall. She had been warned by bylaw enforcement officers, apparently. And she had requested anonymity because she collects disability benefits. In the updated story, that anonymity has still been given to her. 
But she said that she also offered car service to people that wanted to go other places in the city and not just patients. A neighbor who is also unnamed told the London Free Press that she had put up a sign in the lobby of her apartment building that advertised her services to other people. And this person said that he used her service and charged and paid 10 to $12 one way and that she would, in fact, welcome tips. The neighbor said the following. I used her ride service a number of times for non-medical reasons. I worry that her story is intentionally misleading the public to believe she is a good Samaritan being victimized by an aggressive bylaw department that is not following the rules, unquote. A fundraising campaign set up by Jeff Schlemmer this week that has, I think, just shy of 90, or nine, not 90,000, $9,000 now, has been one that Jeff has said he will offer refunds. He also says that the money raised, if people want, if people don't want a refund, can be used to get this woman a license. If she wants to be a vehicle for hire, let her get a license to do it, the same license that Uber drivers have. Well, now you pretty well know the whole story as much as I know it. <laughs> what I'd like to know is how bylaw offices are able to stop and detain you without the help of the police. That's interesting. Wouldn't that mean that anyone has the authority to stop you? I mean, we're not the police, but we're here to charge you with an economic offense. We don't do this for free, you know. Here's your fine, and it'll help pay our salary for the period of our sting operation against you. It is our duty to increase need in our society so that our friends, the taxi industry, can rip those in need off with exorbitant, uncompetitive taxi fares. <laughs> That's essentially the message, folks. You know, what's under attack here is the very idea of profit, the very idea of personal gain, the very idea of freedom to trade value for value. It's very much like Canada's prostitution laws in terms of how the law looks at it. Sex for free is perfectly legal. Sex for money is illegal. The crime, therefore, is the exchange of money, not the exchange of bodily fluids. Now, in this taxi story, the crime is not in giving people the rides, which is perfectly okay but in accepting money for those rides without the permission of the ride Gestapo, which is City Hall, protecting the monopoly of the taxi industry and limiting the number of people who can provide services even through Uber. What this case clearly illustrates is the glaring difference between charity and goodwill towards men and the morality of altruism, which actually seeks to end any such goodwill or charity. Now, remember what Ayn Rand clearly meant by altruism. If you heard last week's show, then you heard Ayn Rand herself say these things. That by altruism, she meant a system under which no man has a right to exist for his own sake, under which service to others is the only justification for his existence, under which self-sacrifice is the highest moral duty and value. Those are the exact things that we're hearing in all of this virtue signaling. The conflict between this philosophy and the moral principle of man's inalienable right to his own life, liberty, and property is, is, is impassable. We must live as traitors, she says, by voluntary choice, a consensual society, which is the political manifestation of those principles. Now, you know, I honestly believe that at the root of altruism's evil, <laughs> if you will, lies the false notion that there will, all, there will always be someone else willing to completely sacrifice themselves for you. 
And it is this profound form of selfishness that's at the root of altruism. I cannot count how many times, even in the field of socialized medicine, especially there maybe, that people will support such things as free health care, and they'll tell you because they're, they want the other guy, you know, they don't want to leave anybody out in the cold. Nobody should be left in need. They're concerned about the poor who can't afford these health care treatments. But really what they're concerned about is their own ability or inability to deal with such issues should they arise. And that shouldn't be what motivates them because that issue can be solved in, in many, many ways as it always was before socialized medicine. But everything in economics is a trade-off. Whenever force is entered into in any equation, then one side in that equation is the loser, I mean, out of necessity. The altruists among us are virtue signaling their morality, their morality of altruism. Now look at the bigger picture. Consider the plight of those being helped by folks like Nancy. They cannot afford city taxicabs. I don't see anyone from that industry coming forward with a plan to service these people. They can't even afford Uber. And what is Uber doing about it? So what are they supposed to do? They have, apparently, according to the law, they have to depend on people sacrificing themselves to others. People who must suffer a personal loss in order to legally be able to help them. <laughs> you know, these days you're a saint only if you're a loser and if someone else gains from your loss. And you have to be seen doing it willingly. I regard this standard of morality as immorality itself. It defines everything about the left, and it illustrates how so many of us think in leftist terms and share leftist values. It also explains why humanity consistently finds itself falling into conflict, violence, hatreds, and wars. That is altruism's shameful hypocrisy and immorality in action. It's the history of altruism. Hitler's Germany and, and the Soviet Russia are perfect examples of altruism in action. But nobody learns. It shows you how important a word is. And where are all of our city's heroes now coming to defend this woman's charitable actions, knowing that she's charging a small fee for her services? Well, since the story completely broke, the silence is deafening. Except from the voices that are just right, and Ayn Rand was just right. Nancy's story has now all but disappeared from view. All of the voices have turned silent because, oh my lord, they learned that she was doing it for self-interest, that she might have had, you know, made a little bit of money on the side. The story finally wrapped up after the revelations that she was perhaps not totally altruistic and self-sacrificial in her endeavors, and suddenly nobody's interested in this angel who was helping the people in need. A lot of issues at stake here. One of them, of course, being the ability of using your own property to earn income. In her case, her car offered to collect taxi fares. I'm not trying to get around any of the liability laws or anything. I think these things are all would take care of themselves if people weren't terrified about conducting these businesses without fear of someone coming down on them. But I, I have to really object to Jeff Schlemmer's comments. The guy's still just full of crap when he says... We all want volunteers to work in the community. The best thing for disabled people is to get out of the house, stay away from their pain and depression, and ideally feel useful and give back to society. 
That way they won't feel like a drain on society. It's among the best medicines we can have for our disabled friends and relatives. It offends me when a bureaucrat wants to shut that down, he says so self-righteously or so, or so self-leftishly. <laughs> you know, I've known and debated Jeff over many years. He's one of the three people in our archive broadcasts of Left, Right, and Center that you can access on Just Right's site at www.justrightmedia.org. But Jeff's a complete lefty. Very nice guy. You know, when you meet him socially and talk to him, easy to get along with. But what he really means by what I just quoted from him is that we don't want anyone to compete with our labor interests. We don't want any competition. We don't want any free enterprise. We don't want free markets, and we don't want free trade. And worse, I found it utterly offensive and obscene for him to say that anyone should deprive themselves of any gain while, quote-unquote, giving back to society. That phrase is terrible. And then to view such volunteers as a drain on society, which is exactly what such people are forced into being by the kinds of laws being enforced here, I mean, that's beyond hypocrisy. Give me a break. Giving back to society, you know, as if successful entrepreneurs should be giving back something they didn't take in the first place. They've already given society something society did not have at a value greater than that asked. That's how trade works. Giving back is what victims of something bad demand from a perpetrator, not something that beneficiaries of something good demand from the person who gives them something. This is how upside down our morality is today. That whole mindset and way of thinking is utterly sinister in every sense of that word. Sinister, of course, being synonymous with the left. Now, on an economic level, purely economic, let's face it, the people getting these rides from Nancy do not represent a market share or any loss to any of the existing cab companies or Uber. I mean, it's already been established that these folks cannot afford these services and certainly not at the frequency with which they need such services if they're going to doctors regularly. So what's the big deal? Even given the current crony monopoly, why is this an issue? So from the micro to the macro, the free trade issue is the same. In calling out the hypocrisy of the other nations with which the United States trades, particularly, particularly that of China, Russia, and Western Europe, which are completely bound in the static society of trade barriers, quotas, tariffs, and the rest, Trump made a powerful point that even free traders who think that Trump is a protectionist should appreciate. Given their own barriers to trade for any of those pots to call any other kettle black, is yet another moral affront. But Trump has spoken to a greater truth, that such evils exist among both our enemies and our friends, the anti-free traders, those on the left, whether by choice or by default. They're in our midst, and they're as close as your city hall. That's a wrap for this week. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. The final count, Herr Covenant, is 894 marks. Thank you, sir. Correction, please.